Hey guys, welcome back. Yeah, come on in. Come on in. Have a seat. Pour yourself some tea. Got some biscuits on the table. Help yourself. Welcome to the Classic English Literature Podcast, where rhyme gets its reason. Now, don't forget to like, subscribe to, and review the podcast. It's the it's the best way to get more folks here to the clubhouse. And if you'd like to enjoy a warm, fuzzy feeling, click the support the show button and warmth and fuzziness will flow. I got a couple of quick recognitions. Thank you very much to Jessica from Italy for your lovely email. Your thoughts are very encouraging and most appreciated. Seriously, that was great. And similarly, my gratitude to Jake from Mississippi, I believe. Uh, Forgive me if I'm wrong. Uh, But thank you for your very kind thoughts in the TikTok comments. They were were great, man. Very encouraging. Thank you so much. Why, thank you. Okay, nerds, pop quiz. Have you a number two pencil ready? Then we'll begin. Who is the only male English poet of the Tudor era, other than William Shakespeare, to address a love poem to a man? I'll repeat the question. Who is the only male English poet of the Tudor era, other than William Shakespeare, to address a love poem to a man? Please answer now. Pencils down. We'll check your work momentarily. I've conceived of this whole podcast as a way of introducing folks to the classic transformative texts of English literature in a historical context. I try to point out the relevant historical and philosophical points, and I offer my own sometimes desultory thoughts. And because this potty is an introduction for the general audience, I've necessarily hewed towards what has been called the canon. The canon, that mythical list of poems, plays, and novels that make up, as critic and poet Matthew Arnold famously declared, the best which has been thought and said. Now, you may know that canonicity is an issue rife with conflict and controversy. And while I find myself on both sides of the issue, I must admit that I do lean toward the traditional. And that's why this show is a bit like those greatest hits collections that those of us of a certain age used to buy at record stores. You know, a sampling of a band or a singer's best-known songs, usually marketed to the casual fan. But record companies also frequently included two or three new songs or, or rare songs to convince the diehard fan to spend a few bucks on a product she mostly already owns. Those sloy villains. Anyway, uh, today I think I've got one of those metaphorical rare songs for you. 
When uh, when we last spoke, we concentrated on Christopher Marlowe's and Walter Raleigh's pastoral eclogues. Now, these are certainly among the greatest hits of English lit. They'll show up in just about every survey course you might take. But while reading up for that episode, I came across another quite interesting pastoral eclogue-ish poem by a guy named Richard Barnfield called The Affectionate Shepherd. And I think this counts as a deep cut. In fact, this episode originally was going to be for the subcast, you know, just a a quick kind of little bonus thing. Look what I found. But the more I started writing it and thinking about it, it became a a full-fledged episode. So, you know, deep cuts, sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're good. The Affectionate Shepherd uh, by Barnfield, it's from 1594. And so it's slightly ahead of its more famous peers. Now, unfortunately, we don't know too much about Barnfield, except that he did did most of his writing before he turned twenty five. I think he was I think he was twenty when he wrote the Affectionate Shepherd, and then he fell silent until his death at fifty two. Country gent, father, and husband—that's all we know, really. A couple of interesting bits of trivia, though. Uh, The Affectionate Shepherd is dedicated to the Lady Penelope Rich. Now, if that name tinkles a distant and meek bell, it's because she inspired Sir Philip Sidney's Stella. Now, another interesting feature is that this poem includes, after a fashion, its own response. There is a day one part and a day two part, and we'll talk more about that later. Now, thirdly, This poem is forthrightly homoerotic. There is absolutely no ambiguity about the gay nature of this speaker's love. Such frankness is quite rare in the 16th century, especially in poetry. Now, certainly, we see hints and glimpses of queerness in many works, but there's always just enough plausible deniability. Barnfield's work is very open, but complicated. More on that momentarily. The poem presents a meditation by the shepherd Daphnis, lamenting the complete disregard by the object of his love, the young man Ganymede. Now, it's worth briefly sketching the meanings implied by the names here. Daphnis, in Greek mythology, was the mortal son of Hermes, the divine herald of the gods, and he was the putative inventor of pastoral poetry. And by the Renaissance, uh, his name had become a byword for the lovelorn shepherd in the verse of his invention. Ganymede, on the other hand, was a Trojan, the most beautiful of mortals, who was abducted by Zeus to become the sky god's cupbearer and um, companion. In Barnfield's poem, Ganymede is besotted with a woman named Gwendolyn, and so rejects the advances and affection of Daphnis. Now, this, of course, gives Daphnis the mopes, for Ganymede is seriously beautiful. Quote, His ivory white and alabaster skin is stained throughout with rare vermilion red, whose twinkling starry lights do never blend to shine on lovely Venus beauty's bed. 
But as the lily and the blushing rose, so white and red on him in order grows. The bulk of day one's discourse rehearses the the rather typical lament of the forsaken shepherd. Daphnis would treat Ganymede like royalty, would give him everything he could desire. Amber bracelets, pearl crownets, charming kisses, his body as a bed, eglantine arbors, and so on and so on. I've always wanted an eglantine arbor. Daphnis would strew his love's path with the treasures of Flora, who's the, the goddess of the spring, and he elaborates an extended honeybee metaphor for his fantasy. Quote, Oh, would to God, so might I have my fee. My lips were honey, and thy mouth a bee. Then shouldst thou suck my sweet and my fair flower, that now is ripe and full of honey berries. Then would I lead thee to my pleasant bower, filled full of grapes, of mulberries, and cherries. Then shouldst thou be my wasp, or else my bee, I would thy hive, and thou my honey bee. <laughs> nice little pun, too, on the homonyms bee, as in the, the pollinating insect, and bee, as in existence. The metaphor recurs with some bitter frustration later. Quote, but like the honeybees, thou suckst the flower till all the sweet be gone, and lovest me for my coin till I have none. Uh, seems a bit catty to accuse the guy of being a gigolo, but there you are. Still in all, Daphnis offers to take the lad fishing, with a pun, I imagine, on rod, hook, and line. He'd play sweet music on his oaten pipes, would give him fruit, uh, apples and cherries feature prominently. But alas, all this fails. By the end of day one, Daphnis shifts his argument from the giving of gifts and the bursting lush and fertile imagery to an emotionally deeper plaint. Uh, this is a longish quote here. Compare the love of fair Gwendolyn with mine, and thou shalt see how she doth love thee. I love thee for thy qualities divine. But she does love another swain above thee. I love thee for thy gifts, she for her pleasure. I for thy virtue, she for beauty's treasure. And always, I am sure, it cannot last, but sometime nature will deny those dimples. Instead of beauty, when thy blossoms pass, thy face will be deformed, full of wrinkles, then she that loved thee for thy beauty's sake, when age draws on, thy love will soon forsake. But that I loved thee for thy gifts divine, in the December of thy beauty's waning, will still admire with joy those lovely eyne that now behold me with their beauty's baning. Though January will never come again, yet April years will come in showers of rain. We get that theme of mutability creeping in again, don't we? You're not always going to be beautiful, Ganymede. It will not always be the springtime of your life, and I will still love you in the autumn and the winter. Gwendolyn won't, for, quote, 
Though she be fair, yet she is light. Not light in virtue shining, but light in her behavior, to impair her honor in her chastity's declining. The argument does not convince Ganymede. To this point, Barnfield has done yeoman's work in his homage to Virgil. The Romans' eclogues, as we have before mentioned, were the primary model for Renaissance pastoral, and Barnfield here does a kind of remix of Virgil's eclogue too. In that poem, the shepherd Corydon burns for the handsome Alexis, offers gifts, rich flocks and abundant milk, and he warns of time's passage. The blackberries are being harvested, he says. Virgil concludes the poem with Corydon chastising himself for his own foolishness. Quote, Ah, Corydon, Corydon, what hath crazed your wit? Your vine half-pruned hangs on the leafy elm. Why haste you not to weave what need requires of pliant rush or osier? Scorned by this, elsewhere some new Alexis you will find. Corridan recognizes his own excessive passion, notes that the passing of time affects himself as well, and he decides to find another lad to love. Sensible, perhaps, but depending on how sincere you feel Corridan is here, it could be seen to undercut his aforementioned pleas. Now, Virgil based his Eclogue too on the Greek Theocritus' poem Ideal 11, written perhaps two and a half centuries earlier, about 300 BCE. The Greek poem begins with an interesting framing device in which Theocritus appears himself. Uh, He counsels his rejected and dejected friend Nisaeus, telling of the Cyclops Polyphemus, yes, he of Odyssey fame, who pined for the nymph Galatea. Now here we have an unrequited heterosexual desire, which Virgil alters, right? And Barnfield preserves. That's a key point. But Polyphemus offers gifts to compensate for his ugliness, which neither Virgil nor Barnfield include. Though perhaps, okay, maybe the relative age gap between the non-lovers may be a version of that. Anyway, Polyphemus says, quote, Delightful girl, I know why you run away. My looks are frightening. I know it's true. One long, shaggy eyebrow runs from ear to ear with one huge eye below. My nose is flat and wide. Yet, as I am, I keep a thousand head of cattle, and from them I fill a vat of the best milk to drink. All year round, I never run out of cheese. Not even in the coldest winter, my baskets are always full. That's great. I mean, unless Galatea is like lactose intolerant. And he chastises his own foolishness at the end of the poem, too. He says, Cyclops, Cyclops, have you lost your mind? Go weave your baskets. Go and milk the ewe that's here. Don't chase the one that runs away. Figure out the sensible thing to do and do it. That's always the best way. You'll find another Galatea, 
maybe a prettier one. Bit of sour grapes here, I think. Not a good look. Uh, but then Polyphemus also turns out to be a murderer and a man-eater, so if he ever decides to work on himself, he's got some other priorities. But he's a lovely musician, so you know there's that. Anyway, the point I'm making is that with some minor deviations and emendations, Barnfield's The Affectionate Shepherd is a fairly faithful entry in the body of pastoral eclogues. He's done a good job imitating the masters, as any journeyman should do on his way to becoming a master himself. But while Theocritus and Virgil end on the sour grapes note, while having the speakers literally question their own sanity, Barnfield has his shepherd simply say, quote, Oh, happy I if I had loved never. And that's a big change, actually. Because while Polyphemus and Corydon decide to wait for the next bus, Daphnis begins to consider what happiness consists of. Barnfield doesn't end his dialogue there, as his antecedents do. He gives us the day after. Well, the day after, sort of. The title of the second part of the poem is The Second Day's Lament. So whether we are talking literally the morning after the night before, or whether this is some second non-contiguous day in an undefined future, that's a bit unclear. Daphnis does seem older, but that could be you know, the actual passage of time and aging, or it could be like a, a literary conceit to emphasize the increased maturity and wisdom evident in part two. He considers the weaknesses and the superficiality of his previous arguments. He thinks about how matters of vice and virtue went unattended in his grand passion. We hear from a more reflective Daphnis here, not quite stoic, but sober. You know, he asks, quote, But why do I of such great follies dream? No sour grapes here. This is not an accusation against Ganymede so much as a recognition of his own short-sightedness. And just a lovely line, rhythmically, don't you agree? But why do I of such great follies dream? Ah, beautiful. Based on this recognition, Daphnis seeks to mentor young Ganymede to offer him virtuous guidance. He proffers the examples of Absalom and Priamus against vainglory and, quote, the gentlewomen of his age who flaunt their beauty. He warns against the pitfalls of pride, indulgence, and mischance that come with loving foolishly. He warns against simple binary either-or thinking, noting that, quote, Virtue and gravity are sisters grown, since black by both, and both by black are known. White is the color of each paltry miller. White is the ensign of each common woman. White is white virtues for black vice's pillar. White makes proud fools inferior unto no man. White is the white of body, black of mind. Virtue we seldom in white habit find. Do not be deceived by appearances or performances. 
Do not be haughty of your own beauty. Often virtue can promote vice by hiding its true essence. That's pretty good. And then we move on to generic dad-style advice. Quote, Apply thy mind to be a virtuous man. Avoid ill company, the spoil of youth. To follow virtue's lore, do what thou can, whereby great profit unto thee ensueth. Read books. Hate ignorance, the foe to art, the dame of error, envy of the heart. Now this Polonius-type instruction continues for like 14 stanzas. And while, since it's an eclogue, in the dramatic situation of the poem, it certainly is directed at a callow Ganymede. We clearly see, though, that Daphnis has grown increasingly self-aware and takes this occasion not only to shape the character of one he loves, but also to remind himself of the character he should cultivate in himself. Richard Barnfield is the only Elizabethan male poet, besides Shakespeare, to address a love poem to a man. Did you answer correctly? Good. Now, what poem did Shakespeare address to a man? Most of his sonnets, actually. Over 120 of them. And, uh, by the by, there are those who believe that Mr. Barnfield is the rival poet figure that populates those sonnets. Anyway, it seems whenever people learn about something like this, they immediately want to know, was Barnfield gay? Now, the fact that the poem is about shepherds never prompts the question, was Barnfield proficient in animal husbandry? The honeybee metaphor never sparks inquiries into Barnfield's apicultural proclivities. But was he gay? The short answer, don't know. The longer answer, we really don't know. Traditional 20th century critical practices warn against conflating the author of a text with that text's speaker or persona. And our persistent tendency to do so anyway stems from a conception of the author developed by 19th century romantics. So there are both hermeneutical and anachronistic problems here. Barnfield was married to a woman and he had children, but of course that does not preclude a queer identity. The matter of identity itself is troublesome too. Like in the early modern world, in Indeed, perhaps even into the mid-20th century or so. Sexuality was not considered an identity marker. One was not gay, one participated in gay sex. It was an action, an activity, not a state of being. Now, as an aside, this of course implies choice, and that led to the conclusion that non-heterosexual sex was perversion, which led in turn to a to a great deal of bigotry and suffering. So, questions of a queer identity in earlier epochs are fraught with ontological and epistemological complexity. While cosmopolitan readers would have understood the same-sex love conventions of such pastorals, 
Barnfield's candid poem did scandalize many, and he was forced to defend the poem's forthright homosexuality by claiming that he was merely demonstrating a fidelity to the Virgilian original, and that readers, quote, did interpret the affectionate shepherd otherwise than in the truth I meant. Maybe that's true, but it's also exactly the type of thing one would say in a country which passed the Buggery Act of 1533, which made gay sex punishable by death. Now, personally, I find it difficult to believe that Barnfield's poem and its direct focus on male-male love is merely an exercise in imitation. He chose to maintain Virgil's alteration to Theocritus's original. And if we cannot with any certainty determine Richard Barnfield's membership in the queer community, I think we can certainly read his poem as at least a voice speaking of queer experience from a world distant in time and tolerance. He presents such love only as love, in a way unremarkable except for its power. You know, If nothing else, the affectionate shepherd presents love as a dominating and sometimes debilitating force, regardless of who is loving whom. And in its presentation of Daphnis's ardor, disappointment, and reconciliation, we see folly and dignity that we all have loved and been unloved too means that Daphnis's folly and dignity is also our own. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed your time here in the clubhouse, please leave a positive review on your streaming platform of choice. Keep up with the show on the various social media apps and drop me a line at classicenglishliterature at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you and I'll talk to you real soon.